Hello and welcome to a BJ Psych Advances podcast. Today I'm very pleased to be joined by Andy Thompson, who is going to talk to us about his paper looking at the at-risk mental state for psychosis, uh, in particular the identification of the at-risk state and current treatment approaches. So Andy's an associate clinical professor in psychiatry at the University of Warwick. He's also a consultant psychiatrist in North Warwickshire Early Intervention in Psychosis Services. And interestingly, he also worked in Melbourne in the Personal Assessment and Crisis Evaluation, or the PACE clinic as it's known. Uh, and it was there that much of the pioneering work has been done in developing the evidence base and also services for people uh, with early onset psychosis. Andy, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Howard. It's a, a real pleasure to come and uh, discuss some of this work today. Thanks. So the concept of early intervention in psychosis is becoming increasingly well known. But I'd just like to ask you to start by describing what is a prodrome and how does this concept apply to schizophrenia? Well, the concept of prodrome is used in, in other medical specialities more than, I guess, has been in psychiatry. Um, but people have known for a long time, going back to even Harris Stack Sullivan, that uh, prodrome has been uh, present in psychosis and in schizophrenia. And the prodrome in schizophrenia is characterised or is, is described as a non-specific set of symptoms that occur prior to the onset of the disorder, namely the, the start of a psychotic disorder. I think a good way of thinking about a prodrome comes from other areas of medicine, such as uh, infectious diseases. So a classic prodrome is in measles, where you have a non-specific set of symptoms for a few days beforehand, such as a cough, a runny nose, and then you have the classic rash that appears, and when you have the classic classic rash appears that appears, then you can make the diagnosis. Um, and I guess it's worth saying as well with the prodrome that um, it is a retrospective concept. So you can only really characterise what has gone on as a prodrome when you have the start of a disorder. So if you have the start of a psychotic disorder, then you can only look back and say it was a prodromal period. So if the prodrome is um, part of a continuum with disease, how, how does this relate to the concept of a, an ultra-high risk state or ultra-high risk criteria? And what do these mean clinically? So in the sort of early 90s, um, when the clinic in Melbourne and, and some other international clinics were starting their programme of uh, early intervention in psychosis, the idea was to try and intervene as early as possible to improve outcome but people said well can we look even earlier within the disease within the um, disorder can we look to a, a putative prodrome and I say putative because because some of those symptoms um, are common in the in the population so the idea was that that if you looked back you could see a number of non-specific symptoms but more some sometimes more subtle psychotic like symptoms such as subtle paranoia uh, perceptual disturbances uh, and sort of 
difficulties in, in thinking. And if you could identify some of those uh, people who were presenting with that, um, then you may be able to see whether they pre prevent that becoming a, a disorder or becoming psychosis. And so that sort of set of symptoms got, got termed an at-risk mental state. So it sort of described uh, what looked like um, were some of those non-specific prodromal symptoms in people. And the criteria that were developed to try and assess that at-risk mental state uh, were termed the ultra-high risk criteria. And this was from the work of Alison Young in, and Pat McGorry in Melbourne. Um, and they were termed at ultra-high risk to try and differentiate these clinical symptoms um, in a group that at that time and, and at this time are help-seeking, so they're coming to services, from the other high-risk studies in psychiatric research, such as, such as the genetic high-risk studies um, that had been going on for a number of years, so hence the term ultra-high risk. And the two sometimes get used interchangeably, but they're, they're trying to denote uh, people who are presenting to services with a set of what we think are risk factors for possibly developing a psychotic disorder. So now that we have this concept of an at-risk mental state, what tools do we have available for actually practically determining who, who might fit these criteria? There are a number of tools that have been developed to try and uh, classify and, in a valid way, um, identify these individuals. Um, so the first set of it's using the ultra high risk criteria there was a um, an assessment called the CALMS which stands for comprehensive assessment of risk mental state and again that was developed in Melbourne and it's a tool that looks mostly at positive symptoms um, but it's a broader tool that, look, that can also be used for an, uh, a number of other symptoms and there are certain ways of assessing that, that that will allow you to see whether somebody meets uh, the defined set of criteria. There are other assessments available, so for example in the States um, there's two sets of uh, assessments called the SIPs and the SOPs, so the Structured Interview for Prodromal Symptoms and the Structured Outcome. So now that we've developed this concept of the at-risk mental state, what tools do we have for, for practically determining who meets these criteria? So there are a number of tools available. Um, there are assessment tools to see if somebody does meet the criteria. Um, the first and the most um, widely used in the UK is the Comprehensive Assessments of At-Risk Mental State, or the, also known as the CALMS that was developed by Alison Young in Melbourne. And this is a, uh, a tool that looks at a number of symptoms but concentrates on uh, positive symptoms and assessing whether somebody does meet the risk criteria. And the risk criteria is composed of both meeting positive symptoms 
a drop in functioning and also uh, potentially meeting trait criteria such as having a family history of psychotic disorder or schizotypal personality disorder. Um, so that's one tool that's relatively widely used and well validated. In the States they use uh, different tools called the, the SIPs and the SOPs um, that are uh, assessing quite a similar set of uh, symptoms and they use a, a, a related term called clinical high risk which is, is very similar to the ultra high risk in terms of its, its criteria. There are other sets of assessment criteria that look at um, other 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 risk symptoms that we're, prob we're possibly going to talk about later, such as the basic symptoms uh, criteria. But the two main uh, ones for uh, at-risk mental state are the CALMS and the SIPs and the SOPs. Great, thank you very much. You mentioned the basic criteria. What what are the the basic symptoms, and how do they fit with the ultra high risk state which you were mentioning earlier? They're a very interesting um, set of of symptoms um, that mainly come out of a set of German research groups over the last twenty to thirty years. Um, and are, are used in, in often in European settings, and they they basically are more subtle, subjective uh, differences or difficulties in thinking and in cognition and in in uh, motor skills that um, are picked up with with different rating tools, and they are because they are subjective, um, they are quite difficult to um, to assess and need a reasonable amount of training in terms of the tools that are used. Nevertheless, they are um, quite good at, at predicting uh, people who might develop schizophrenia in the long term um, and are quite common in the ultra-high risk state as well. So people have um, almost uh, used them side by side um, to, uh, in, to determine who may or may not develop psychosis. But at, at the moment, we are, in the UK, more concentrating on the ultra-high risk, at-risk mental state concept, as it is slightly easier to detect and slightly easier to assess. Thank you. And you mentioned earlier about how a prodrome can only truly be determined retrospectively once an illness has developed but there may be people who show prodromal symptoms but never go on to uh, develop the full form of the illness. How accurate are we currently at um, predicting who will go on to develop a psychotic illness from those these earlier symptoms? That's a, a very good question, and I guess it's one that affects the ethics and the, um, the 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 debate about whether people should be picking these things up or even intervening in these in these stages. The initial studies that were done um, with this using this ultra high risk criteria, and I should mention that it, this criteria picks up a mixture of low-grade psychotic symptoms, so not at the threshold, quite at the threshold of psychosis, some very brief psychotic, full, full psychotic um, periods, 
that resolve spontaneously and um, trait risk um, that I've mentioned before. So they have a combination of those three factors as well as a drop in functioning, as well as being help seeking. So if you take that group, initially the studies were suggesting maybe up to 35-40% of those individuals would develop psychosis at 12 months. Um, however, over time there's been um, a number of other longitudinal studies using these criteria. And if you look at a re recent meta-analysis, the rates seem to be a little bit lower. So for example, 22% at 12, at 12 months from the meta-analysis. However, the, the, it, these people do appear to be uh, continually at risk even after 12 months. Um, so for example, I think at three years, the risk goes up to around about 36% and it carries on over the long term. So in terms of, a, of comparing it to a, a population risk, those risks are really quite high. We've, we've often said in the region of 400, 500 times the population risk. Um, but the caveat is that even within that time frame, um, less than half of the people will develop um, a psychotic disorder, full threshold psychotic disorder. Um, so that is one of the, the, the implications of the, the, the current criteria um, and I guess why we, we need to improve the predictive validity of these criteria. And we've heard a lot about the potential that biomarkers might have in lots of different areas of psychiatry but it seems there's been quite little clinical impact to date. What can biomarkers offer in early intervention in psychosis and, and how do you see this evolving in the future? I think that's one of the um, interesting areas in terms of trying to increase the predictive validity of these criteria. I, I would say firstly also using clinical or, or other um, factors are, are, are quite important and we know there are a number of additional clinical factors that can be added to the criteria that will improve the predictive um, power of these criteria. The biomarkers um, are, are interesting and as you say, there is quite a lot of work going on in biomarkers, but at the moment that's, those things aren't used clinically. So for example, um, there are some people in, uh, led by a, a team in Munich who are looking at combining structural imaging um, and how that might be different for people in a, in a putatively prodromal state and how that might be a risk uh, marker for people who will develop psychosis. Um, there's some work at the Institute of Psychiatry looking at um, presynaptic dopamine as a potential marker um, of people within this ultra-high risk state who may develop psychosis. There's a group in the States who've uh, used an innovative approach of combining blood tests and blood, other blood markers such as inflammatory markers to see whether they can increase the predictive validity of these uh, the ultra-high risk criteria. So there's a lot of work going on in the area. I think it's just um, the translational work of how this may then uh, come to the clinic um, 
which is which would be uh, quite important. So it seems that the holy grail for any early intervention must be the the possibility of altering the natural history of an illness and um, ultimately actually helping to prevent um, transition into a more damaging form of of the disease. What interventions have we seen used in psychosis thus far and how effective have they been? I think after um, people found that, that these criteria, the ultra-high risk criteria, are the, um, or the at-risk mental state, they did have predictive validity for predicting later psychosis. Then people then moved on to say, well, are, they, are there any potential interventions that we can use to either delay or prevent people developing psychosis, which, as you say, is the, would be the holy grail, would be the thing that we would want to do. The first studies that were um, uh, trialled were of antipsychotic, low-dose antipsychotic medications. So, for example, low-dose um, risperidone in Melbourne and then later um, alanzapine in the States. In Ye- at Yale, uh, and initially there was some suggestion that, that the medications did reduce the rates of people developing psychosis, um, but what was found is that that didn't continue. So in the follow-up period, the rates uh, became uh, much more similar, and people did notice um, considerable side effects in the antipsychotic medications, uh, which tempered the sort of the the initial. Uh, results in terms of how beneficial it may be to uh, a patient. The next phase of of studies was uh, more cognitive interventions, so cognitive behavioural therapy, Um, and there was a trial in the the UK and there have been trials in other uh, areas of of the world, including the Netherlands and Canada. a similar story that initially there were positive findings in terms of reduction of transition to psychosis but that did not didn't last so uh, when people were followed up the rates then became quite similar um i guess the risk balance benefit or the risk balance ratio for some things like cognitive therapy um is is more in favor of the therapy is is not going to be harmful and the people have actually looked at this um, which is why, in terms of treatments, people are uh, suggesting this is this is more appropriate at this point in time. The last um, trial, that, which was a very exciting trial that was done in Vienna, was a trial of high-dose uh, omega-3 fatty acids. And this showed that there was quite a, a big difference in terms of the number of people developing psychosis in the people who took high-dose fatty acids for three months. And obviously people were very excited about this because um, it is a low-stigma, low-side-effect treatment. Um, And if it did have such beneficial effects, people would would find it very useful. There's two replication studies um, that we're aware of at the moment, and the results from the first are less promising. So at the moment, it doesn't look like uh, there is a significant difference in people who take fish oils and people who don't. The problem with a number of the trials 
at, the, at present is um, initially the rates of people developing psychosis were relatively high. In the trials at the moment, the rates have gone under 10%. So it could be that some of the trials are underpowered to find an effect for um, some of these interventions. So understandably, the, the concept of early intervention psychosis has proved quite controversial and you've already touched on a couple of points around stigma and the potential risks with giving somebody pharmacological interventions. What are the other main ethical issues that affect an intervention in psychosis and is there any way that these concerns could be mitigated? I've mentioned a few of the ethical issues and, and it, we're right, I think I'm right to highlight again this idea of the false positives. So you, if you are attempting to intervene with, with, with a group of people and at least half of them aren't going to develop a disorder, then you need to be very, very careful about what you do, how you approach this and you know what your your aims and goals are. Again, a caveat to that is that people are quite interested now, in, instead of this arbitrary cut-off of, of frank psychosis or not frank psychosis, we know that this group of individuals have uh, a number of other disorders. In fact, most of them will have a diagnosable um, psychiatric disorder. They also have particularly poor functional, functional, functioning or functional outcome, and they are help-seeking. They are a clinical population that are distressed so it's not as if this group are um, not in need of care I think that's the first the first caveat but I suppose if as you as you go on making something um, into almost a disorder and have giving it a term and saying this is the at-risk mental state um, people start using it as such and, and not just as the risk state that that, that, it, that it is um, and there are implications for things like um, insurance, for um, criminal responsibility, um, and as you mentioned, st stigma. So um, there is work going on at the moment about is, is this term terminology, is this idea stigmatising to young people, is it in any way useful for people to, to have this, have their... Uh, experiences framed in terms of um, risk. Um, what's the balance between normalising experiences and and um, trying to prevent disorder or trying to um, treat symptoms that are, that are there? So there are there are a number of, of ethical issues and and the, that debate continues. And in fact, that debate was very interesting in terms of the decision not to include an, a risk syndrome um, type diagnosis in DSM-5. So there were suggestions or there were proposals that this would become a DSM-5 um, diagnosis. It's a, a related diagnosis called psychos um, psychosis risk or was called psychosis risk syndrome. It's called um, attenuated psychosis syndrome. And these were some of the debates were, that were played out over over those decisions. So, at the moment, it's still uncertain as to where this will go in terms of how it's seen as being a diagnosis, 
or whether it's a syndrome or whether it's, as you say, just uh, simply a, an at-risk state. But once a person has been identified as being at a high risk of psychosis, practically what services are available to them at the moment and is there a consistent approach that is recommended for their management and their treatment? Um, at, at present there are the services available are often based around um, research clinics so there are a number of clinics in the in the UK um, but they they have quite a strong research focus however the new uh, weighting uh, targets for early psychosis include at-risk mental state within those targets and uh, I think over the num next number of months, um, if not years, but certainly in the near future we're going to see many more services, um, mostly early psychosis services who provide this, providing treatment and assessment and treatment to people who meet the at-risk at mental state criteria. And um, those, there are suggestions in the NICE guidelines uh, at present about what might be suggested um, to do with, with people who have an at-risk mental state. The current suggestion is that CBT is the recommended treatment. But along with that, I think uh, good case man any good case management is is will will be doing a lot and, and, and in fact a lot of EI teams early intervention teams at present are seeing these people assessing these people and doing what's called a, a watching brief or a, a watch and and wait type approach but some of the uh, the case management approaches that they're using such as sorting out somebody's housing, uh, keeping them in college, are do appear to be effective in terms of improving people's outcomes. The suggestion at the moment, as I've said before, is that people shouldn't be using antipsychotics as a treatment um, unless there are certain circumstances such as a, a rapid deterioration in symptoms or functioning, but the general suggestion is that people shouldn't be uh, treating with, with antipsychotics. Um, there's also the suggestion that family therapy, um, it, certainly in the NICE guidelines, is, is helpful. Although there's no specific trial evidence to suggest that, that, that this will be helpful, um, it makes sense that it, it probably is likely to be um, appropriate in these young people that, that often have um, difficulties within, their, within their, their family or care settings. So the approach is more of a, a holistic and coordinated one rather than just thinking about a specific pharmacological or psychological treatment? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think um, certainly the, the, the basis of good case management is, is, is key. Um, as I said, the, the recommended treatment in terms of NICE is cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, I would highlight again that, that these people have... Um, other disorders, so they have a risk state on top of other disorders. So, probably sixty percent of people will have an affective disorder. Um, so, part of your treatment is to treat the underlying um, other disorder. So, treatment for the depression, anxiety, the substance use. So, that is is key in terms of uh, what you're doing. Um, uh, and people have 
suggested whether you know the period of, of treatment should be six months or twelve or twelve months, but within that period, um, the emphasis should be on the needs and should be on the formulation as as not just the the risk state. Um, so, for example, uh, a, a number of the treatments will be aimed at other things that will have a subsequent effect on on the psychotic-like experiences that that person has. Now, you mentioned briefly the the new access and waiting time standard for first episode psychosis, and I know that you have a paper looking at this in more detail coming out soon in the BJ Psych Bulletin. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the background to this, where it comes from, and also what does this mean for clinicians and patients? Yeah, thanks, Howard. It is definitely worth mentioning because it is uh, such a big thing for psychiatry in general. This is the first waiting time target for psychiatry. Um, It comes with some additional funding, but it also in some ways changes the paradigm and allows um, a focus on what this is a more preventative approach, I guess, to the treatment of psychiatric disorders. Certainly the at-risk mental state is indicated prevention. Um, So in that way it is uh, very exciting. So you mentioned the new access and waiting time standard for first episode psychosis and I know that you have another paper coming out which looks at this in more detail in the BJ Psych Bulletin. So I was wondering if you could just give a little bit of background about where this comes from and also what does this mean for patients and for clinicians? Yeah, thank you, thank you, Howard. It's um, quite an exciting uh, time, I think, quite, an, quite a, a, a coup for psychiatry. This is the first uh, waiting time target in psychiatry, and I guess we are pleased that it is in an area of almost preventative uh, psychiatry, and certainly we would. Uh, treating or assessing an at-risk mental state is indicated prevention. So the idea is that there is uh, a tar- there's certainly a target that 50% of people with suspected psychosis, so this includes a first episode psychosis and the at-risk mental state group, uh, 50% of those are um, within two weeks offered a nice care pathway or a nice approved pathway Um, so it means that we have to uh, take people on quickly or we have to assess and um, treat people quickly which is what we should be doing in terms of uh, an early psychosis presentation what it also does is set standards for the early psychosis teams um, and uh, that are going to be monitored and measured um, and along with that does come some some potential additional funding so it's a it's a, a marker to say that this is an important area in psychiatry and, and with, within the NHS and so within these standards the at-risk mental state is is acknowledged and is part of these these waiting time standards um, so we'll see some developments over the next few months in, in terms of what services do to try and meet these standards. Great. So it seems clear that there's been quite considerable progress 
both in identifying and effectively treating those with early onset psychosis. But now there's also quite considerable advances in terms of the structure of services and the policy context around that, which is very encouraging. Where do you think we go from here? As you said, I think it is very encouraging and, and we've been encouraged by the targets and, and the government commitment to, to the targets. Um, but I don't think we need to be complacent. I think there are, certainly for the at-risk mental state, um, there, are, there are questions about improving the validity that I've talked about and I think there, are, there is a lot of work going on with this. The inclusion in, of, in the DSM-5 of uh, attenuated psychosis syndrome um, is a move forward, I think. Um, because that before that becomes always taken into any new additions, it needs additional uh, research. Um, the treatment trials are ongoing, and I think the treatment trials uh, are yeah, certainly some of the newer treatment trials are replication trials, and there haven't been as many of the, the replication trials. And the trials are also focusing in not just on uh, psychosis and so-called transition to psychosis but they're focusing in on functional outcomes and other outcomes in terms of um, uh, other de developing other disorders. I think it's also helping us move forward with, with preventative paradigms so it's not just psychosis that this, this uh, approach could be applied to, in fact it isn't so, for example, bipolar disorder has a, um, a what looks like a uh, a period or, or a putative prodrome, or certainly risk factors that could be identified early. Um, a similar could be true for depression and, and other disorders. And there is a concept of um, what's called clinical staging that that is suggesting that um, we look at some of these risk factors and risk syndromes as early as possible and then we adapt our treatments to that so we provide benign non-stigmatizing treatments to hopefully improve people's outcome earlier in their path in their pathways which is to me is a very exciting development and I think this this uh, approach and, and the government standards will help us um, in that in that aim. Thank you so despite some ethical considerations which uh, still remain very pertinent uh, and some limitations to some of the tests, this remains an area of huge therapeutic um, optimism and, and hope. And uh, I, I really thank you for coming and sharing your insights into this area with us today. Thank you very much, Howard. It's been a pleasure to, um, to tell you about our research. Thank you.